MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello everyone, welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, May 25th. This is episode number 71. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill, and with me, as always, is Andrew Torres. Woo, thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I had a kind of a relaxing weekend. I got oh. a little sick yesterday, but it's Oof. not COVID. It might be allergies. I just feel kind of a little under the weather, but I'm getting better. So I guess everything's okay. Well, I take it easy, and you know, we've got a upcoming three-day weekend which means absolutely nothing for you and i but no. you know <laughs> but no. still relax and hopefully uh hopefully our listeners are having a nice low-key week in anticipation of uh uh you know that that extra holiday coming on monday and uh special thanks a shout out to our new patrons adra pansa matthew vernon hey welcome aboard here Tanya Dawn Graham, our friends over at the Fallacious Trump Podcast. Give them a listen. And I became a patron to give a shout out to Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> uh, and uh, remember that you too can get a shout out by heading over to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod and pledging as little as a buck an episode. It's A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D. You get the ad free version of the show. You also get our bonuses like the fantastic Zoom hangout we did. Last Friday, the 13th of May, and we try to do those monthly-ish, so yeah, I look forward yeah, we're, to that. We're, we're doing our best, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, patrons are wonderful. They make the show go, and uh, and we love you all, but uh, we love our patrons more, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> pulling no punches. Uh, speaking of not pulling any punches, uh, but also <laughs> some bad late-breaking news that you yep. know, maybe we should talk about at the end, or we could talk about at the beginning, but we're going to go over a couple of court filings with you. The first one is an 11-page opinion on the RNC case. Remember when the RNC sued the January 6th committee to stop them from getting documents and, and stuff from, from their vendor called Salesforce? Because Salesforce too, was like, <laughs> uh, you know, this is bad. We feel like we actually might have sent some messages out that stoked some violence on January 6th. And they yeah. <laughs> we're all set to set so send stuff over to the committee and the RNC Republican National Committee sued to stop it and we have an update in that that's a filing and then we have a sprawling 40 page crazy pants filing <laughs> from Eastman's attorneys in the Eastman email case being heard by Judge Carter Judge Carter is the, the judge who said there were crimes committed here and that's why we, they handed over uh emails to the 16 committee one of those emails 
uh, fell under the crime fraud exception of attorney-client privilege of work product doctrine. So we have 601 more emails, and apparently Eastman, who was granted 40 pages, used all 40. Oh, yes, he did. <laughs> For uh, to 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 tell us why he's innocent and why the, the why Judge Carter should change his mind on stuff he's already ruled on and why he shouldn't allow any of these other emails to go over to the committee. It's a really interesting filing. I look forward to talking to you about that. <laughs> but uh, let's talk about the RNC. Okay, let's let's start here. And I, you know, should should we start with the good news, right? Which is that. Uh, I, this is a completely ridiculous lawsuit without merit. And uh, as a result, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, again, this is Judge Timothy J. Kelly, somebody in front of whom I have practiced. And when it was assigned to Judge Kelly, who you know was a Trump appointee, we talked about on this show, I said, look, I, you know, I, 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 would Judge Kelly and I agree as a matter of politics on there? You know, maybe not. But uh, I've practiced in front of him. I have found him to be open-minded and fair and smart. And I had absolutely no doubts that uh, he would have no problems adjudicating this case. And uh, <laughs> put a pin in that, but spoiler alert, I was right at least at this level. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that really cool appellate yeah, court we news shall. in a second. <laughs> um, but you know, the court gives a great summary here mm-hmm. uh, of what what has happened. So I'm just going to directly read this summary, and it'll it'll bring everyone up to speed. Although I think everyone's probably already up to speed. But the the ruling here says that the U.S. House of Representatives Select Committee um, issued a subpoena to Salesforce.com Inc., a third party digital vendor for the RNC Republican National Committee demanding it produce to the select committee some of the RNC's confidential information relating to emails and other communications sent around the time of the November 2020 presidential election and January 2021 certification of the Electoral College vote. The RNC then sued Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, the select committee, and each member of the select committee, also known as the House Defendants, to challenge the subpoena. Uh, The RNC later amended its complaint to add Salesforce as a defendant, And the RNC challenged the subpoena on six grounds, asking for injunctive relief, arguing that, first of all, the subpoena violated the First Amendment, that it, number two, violates the Fourth Amendment, number three, it does not advance a valid legislative purpose, number four, they say the committee lacks the necessary congressional authorization to issue a subpoena, okay, Number five, the subpoena is excessively broad and unduly burdensome, tiny violin. (laughs) And number six, it violates the Stored Communications Act. Now, the court dismissed the RNC's claims against the House defendants because of their immunity from suit under the Constitution's speech or debate clause. And they found that the RNC had standing to press its claims against only Salesforce, dismissed as moot the RNC's Stored Communications Act claim against Salesforce, assumed in the RNC's favor two potential non-jurisdictional hurdles to the merits of the RNC's other claims against Salesforce, and entered judgment against the RNC on those claims. Uh, The court also temporarily enjoined all the defendants from acting on the subpoena uh, until, uh, as relevant here, right, the little temporary injunctive relief here, uh, well, the court resolved a motion for injunction pending appeal filed by the RNC before May 5th, 2022. Yeah. Yeah, that is all exactly correct. And remember, the game here is not the merits. The game is, is a court going to grant an injunction that requires Salesforce not to comply with the subpoena? 
right? Because in the absence of that ruling by the court, Salesforce has said, yes, we will happily comply with the legal subpoena issued by the House 1-6 committee and turn over all these documents that the RNC definitely does not want the 1-6 committee to see. Now, what's in those documents? I don't know. But but if the Republican Party does not want the 1-6 committee to see them, um, I would very much like to see them. That's my that's my standard for review here. So remember when we're talking about injunctive relief, right? There, there are basically three kinds of inquiries here, right? The first is, is there irreparable harm to the parties, right? And and here, the court says, yeah, there is going to be irreparable harm to the RNC in the sense that if they do not issue an injunction, right, all irreparable harm means is, <laughs> so what it means for harm to be reparable is capable of being recompensed with money, Right. So if we fuck this up in some way, you, you, you know, we can fix it later on. Right. And and most cases are like that. Right. And so the court will be like, you know what? There's no need on a breach of contract suit, for example, if they say preliminarily like, eh, we're going to listen to this. Like at the end of the day, we can require party B to give party A the you know, if you're suing over one hundred thousand dollars, let's say. Right. We'll just issue an order for the hundred thousand dollars and we'll issue a prejudgment interest. Right. Dating back from the moment you filed this complaint so we can make you whole on lots and lots of injuries that are associated with money. But on something that's not associated with money, <laughs> that's what we call irreparable harm. Right. And that's I look at when we broke this down. When we discussed the dismissal uh, of the one six committee as a defendant, um, you know, we said, look, this that there, there probably is irreparable harm to the RNC here in the sense that once those emails are turned out, you can't unturn them over, right? Right. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like you know, Liz Cheney's seen them. Like that's it. There. You know, that's done. Right. And and I think the court finds that here that they that they could suffer. Yep. irreparable harm but there are other factors to consider in the legal standard which this which the court spells out here number one is are you likely to succeed on the merits and and, and that's the other so you know as a lawyer when you're working through and different courts number these in different ways but as a lawyer when you're working through am i likely to get an injunction for my client or as <laughs> this happens to to me on both sides of this is my client likely to you know suffer having an injunction imposed on it by the court the very you work through the questions in this order right the first thing you ask yourself is is there irreparable harm right like that's why we did it and but that's as you point out that's not enough that that gets you over the first hurdle then you ask the second question which is is the party seeking the injunction, have they demonstrated the likelihood of success on the merits, right? And different jurisdictions handle this in different ways, right? Like that the more serious the potential harm is, the, the there's sometimes a sliding scale, right, that says, hey, you know, don't, don't, don't make us show that we're 95% likely to win because the harm to us would be devastating. You know, you should only make us show that we're 60% likely to win. And sometimes courts entertain that argument. But but in any event, right, it, it is still uh, uh, this kind of weird exercise that you go through in which the court says, I know we're not going to look at the merits of this claim yet. I know we haven't gone through discovery, but I need you to give me your best argument right now why you're going to win. 
right? And and think about that. Like that's a weird thing to do in front of a court <laughs> when you know they don't have all the the rest of the background. Here, the RNC has demonstrated that it has a serious legal question, right? So, and by serious, that means not frivolous. <laughs> um, that's way, 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 way shy of, and we're likely to win, um, largely because the answer to, are you likely to win on the merits is no, not right. at all. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and yeah, go ahead. But if you can prove irreparable harm and and there is a serious legal question, but there's also a very huge public interest whether the balance of equities tips in their favor becomes a consideration. And and that's like the third level inquiry, right? So this this is also the balance of the equities test is present in kind of your ordinary situations, right? When I've talked about like how I, I represented a client that had a swimming pool and the landlord tried to lock her out of the swimming pool and, you know, uh, interfered with access to the equipment. And we had to go to court and get an injunction that says, hey, uh, landlord, stay away. You know, don't lock the premises. Stay away from the swimming pool. Don't touch the stuff. Don't interfere with her business. Right. Um, and And there was a little bit of like, balance that this third prong right balance of harm uh, uh you know which side uh do, do the public equities favor right and we were able to say the public equity tips in favor of a business that serves the public it was almost exactly a year ago this time right it was memorial day weekend and like you know families think about taking their kids to the pool on memorial day weekend right um but that really it in most cases tends not to be dispositive when you're talking about private interests, right? Like, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be important public policy concerns on both sides, right? Like it's also the court would say that there is an important public policy concern in making sure that landlords get paid or whatever, right? Like, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not a huge balance one way or the other, but when you're involving the government here, <laughs> um, that there is this kind of carve out that says, if you present a serious legal question, but not one that rises to the level of uh, likelihood of success on the merits, and you would suffer irreparable harm, and the rest of the public policy efforts tip strongly or tip sharply, as, as uh, the, the leading DC case says, in favor of one party, then you can issue an injunction, right? And the issue there is if there, if this is a case that um, it really is unsettled, uh, there is a need for, quote, more deliberate investigation, we're, we're not going to hold one party to the side of saying, hey, we are absolutely likely to win or more likely than not to win uh, because if the law is unsettled, well, you might not be able to demonstrate that, right? And and nevertheless, it might fit within this kind of specific public policy niche. That's the position that the RNC was arguing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and the court says here, they, they sum up by saying, you know, the court assumes the RNC has shown that mm -hmm. it uh, appeals, it, its appeal presents a serious legal question. And without a doubt, the court says the RNC has shown it will suffer one sort of irreparable harm absent an injunction pending appeal. But it has not shown that the merged balance of equities and public interest factors, quote unquote, tip sharply in its favor. Thus, the court will deny the RNC's motion 
only insofar as it requests an injunction pending appeal. And then they say, even so, the court will grant the RNC's request for a, a brief administrative injunction, so you can seek injunction pending appeal from the circuit. And, and they break it down like this. They say, first of all, on the claims matter, given the court just resolved the case against the RNC, the court does not find that the RNC is likely to succeed on any of its claims. And then they say, yes, the court assumes here the RNC's First Amendment claim presents a serious legal question. And further, the claim is a complicated one, right, having to take up a large portion of the court's merits analysis and requiring mm -hmm. extensive unpacking of the legal framework as well as application of that framework to the facts. And the court thus assumes the claim presents a fair ground for litigation and warrants more deliberative investigation. But the question then is whether the other th three factors tip sharply in the RNC's favor. And the RNC argues, absent an injunction pending appeal, it will suffer irreparable harm and that the case will become moot before the circuit can decide on the merits. Meaning they'll get the stuff. The 1-6 committee will get the stuff. It'll become moot. And the court agrees. Uh, the RNC also argues that the merged balance of equities and public interest prongs weigh in its favor. In considering these merged factors, the court must balance the competing claims of injury and the effect an injunction would have on each party while paying particular regard for the public consequences in employing the extraordinary remedy of injunction. And on the RNC side of the scale is the harm that, absent an injunction, it will suffer the de facto deprivation of the basic right to appeal. On the House defendant side of the scale uh, is, added, is the added delay. Will that further interfere with the select committee's investigation, which is at a critical juncture, et cetera? Uh, already strong public interest is heightened for the select committee's urgent and weighty investigation. And moreover, uh, the judge continues, the court is ill-equipped to weigh any potential reduction of House defendants' harm that might come from expediting the resolution of the RNC's appeal, because the timing of that appeal is beyond the court's control. The circuit, therefore, is better positioned to weigh any potential mitigation along these lines that may redound to the benefit of the RNC and the balancing of equities and the public interest. Yeah, so let's break that down, right? Essentially, what Judge Kelly is saying here is, look, I, I am giving you the full benefit of the doubt here, RNC. Uh, that if I do not issue an injunction, you can't put the genie back in the bottle and that there is a, a serious question on the merits of whether I should issue the injunction. But weighing against that is the public policy need for the one six committee to complete its investigation and for you not to be able to run out the clock, which is your entire game strategy and has been since 2017. Right. So I, it is, I think, really, really significant. This is page 10 of the opinion, if you go to it, uh, in which the court says the court must weigh the, the, the select committee's need to conclude its investigation at a critical juncture as it approaches public hearings and is attempting to complete its investigative efforts heavily. Quote, even under ordinary circumstances, there is a strong public interest in Congress carrying out its lawful investigations, requiring courts to take care to not unnecessarily halt the functions of a coordinate branch of government, right? This already strong public interest is heightened for the select committee's urgent and weighty investigation. And that was sort of the, the, the preliminary lead up to. So remember, in order to win on this theory with, with a likelihood of success on the merits as low as just, well, this is a serious question, the RNC has to show that the public's interest is 
favored, is strongly favored, that all the factors point in favor of not complying with the subpoena. And Judge Kelly is very reasonably pointing out, like, um, uh, under the best case scenario, like, yeah, you have a good argument, but the select committee has a good argument too, right? Like, it, it needs to be able to finish this up and not just have you, you know, tie it up in the courts indefinitely. And um, if there are strong interests on both sides, then this factor doesn't tip one way or the other. Yep, yep. And that's what the the judge says. With with weighty considerations on both sides of the scale, the court cannot say that the merged balance of equities and public interest factors tip sharply in the RNC's favor. And for all those reasons, we deny the motion uh, to yep. the extent it requests an injunction pending appeal. So that he's he's kicking this to the circuit court. Yep. Right? Which I was all fine and good with until... <laughs> Me too. Dum, dum, dum. We get the judge pull, right? The judge draw in the circuit court. You know, everyone knows that the appellate court has a three-panel judge. They're randomly assigned, seemingly. Uh, and uh, guess, guess who they pulled? Yeah, why don't you share that with us? Because this is... This is bad. <laughs> All right. Well, looking at my photo here of the order, it looks like we have Judge Rao, Judge Walker, and who's the third guy? Katzis? Uh, Judge Judge Gregory Katzis. Yeah. yeah. And again, uh, <laughs> so Judge Katzis is also, so this is three for three on Trump appointees, right? <laughs> wow. Yeah. It, 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 so that's, that's some bad luck, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't think you could have pulled a worse... It, it, you could not, right? So there's 16 judges on the D.C. Circuit. To to get three Trump appointees is, is pretty bad. Judge Katzis is the best of the three, right? Um, he's competent and qualified to serve on the D.C. Circuit. Naomi Rao, you have heard of. Uh, she is a pro-Trump hack and an idiot. Um, or, or, like, I cannot tell if she is, right? Like, you know... If she's an idiot in the mold of, you know, Ted Cruz and, you know, Ron DeSantis, right? Like the, the Ted Cruz, again, year ahead of me at Harvard Law School, Ron DeSantis, very, very well educated at Ivy League schools. They pretend to be morons to cater to their constituents. And Naomi Rao has been nothing but a pro-Trump hack. Since being on the bench, you might recall her as having authored the opinion that said, I don't see how you can enforce a subpoena. So um, that's that's a real bad draw. And then the capper, the one that folks uh, uh, other than those who listen to the show Your might favorite. be scratching their head about is Judge Justin Walker declared a, a virtually uniformly not qualified to sit on the federal bench at all. Right. Like literally, this is somebody who was teaching writing and debating idiots like me. Right. Like, seriously, I engaged in a debate sponsored by the American Constitution Society, Federalist Society against Justin Walker. He was thoroughly dishonest. You can go hear that over on opening arguments. Um, he, he went from like n not even teaching substantive law school subjects. Right. Like he was teaching writing classes, like not con law, like not cutting edge stuff, um, to appointment to the federal bench to several months later appointment to the D.C. Circuit. Right. So he went from the Eastern District of Kentucky to the D.C. Circuit in record timing. Um, typically, by the way, you're supposed to have 12 years of experience 
on the federal bench before you get elevated up to uh, a circuit judge position. Um, three months, uh, 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 not quite the same. Prior to that, right, he was, again, uh, the ABA, uh, bipartisan, declared him not qualified to sit on the federal bench because he had not so much as taken a deposition, um, filed a motion for summary judgment, let alone tried a case. So, you know, uh, just exists as a pro-Trump hack, uh, buys lock, stock, and barrel, tried, I call him out on this in the middle of our debate, like, uh, tried to perpetuate the uh, Amy Coney Barrett. This was before Amy Coney Barrett was uh, elevated to the Supreme Court, but uh, in her uh, previous uh, investiture uh, during the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, the extreme religious right was circulating the how unfair it was to question her about the fact that she's a member of a religious cult and is uh, programmed from birth to be against uh, Roe versus Wade. Um, uh, he tried to go on a, a an idiotic pity party story during our debate of how that violates the Constitution's religious test. And um, if you want to hear me call him out on that, <laughs> go head on over to opening argument. But like, I take no pride in destroying this guy in a debate because, you know, he's on the D.C. circuit now and I'm not. So, um, so this and is really, to- really bad. Yeah. And he gets, this will probably then, it'll probably be overturned two to one. It'll be two one, yeah. And then <laughs> my question for you, does that then go on banc? Can can the committee ask for an on banc review? Um, it, 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 not only can the committee ask for one, the D.C. Circuit can uh, declare, decide, right, yeah. take a vote by a majority sua sponte on banc. And just like the last time Naomi Rao tried to pull a fast <laughs> one and say, hey, um, I'm going to rule that subpoenas can't be enforced, never minding the, you know, Latin definition of the word, uh, <laughs> the, the D.C. Circuit stepped in and smacked that down. They're going to do the same thing here. But but the problem is, is, you know, they're running out the clock. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, the court absolutely is going to get, uh, is going to grant, uh, so as you point out, uh, judge Kelly, and, and again, this is a hundred percent proper granted a brief interlocutory injunction to allow the RNC to appeal. You do that so that you don't deprive somebody of their substantive rights by, you know, the procedural delay in in filing your appeal and there is no doubt that the dc circuit is going to stay the enforcement of that judgment pending the appeal um how they conspire with the rnc to delay this case as much as possible will be the the interesting thing worth watching because make no mistake naomi rao and justin walker are not judges. I don't give a shit what it says after their name on Wikipedia. I don't care that they were confirmed by a partisan Senate. They are hacks who exist to do what Trump wants on the bench. Uh, and they they don't deserve our respect of being called federal judges. They, they have re- repeatedly demonstrated time and time again that uh, that they've fallen below and beneath that minimum standard of, of, of justice. And uh, and we should look at this as being hijacked by the Trump wing of the Republican Party. And um, there, there's nothing that, uh, you know, is <laughs> is inappropriate procedurally to try and, and get around that. And there's nothing that they won't do to try and, and further 
the big lie. Justin Walker probably fucking believes the big lie. Like, I mean, he is that far gone. Na- Naomi Rao probably believes it. Like that they are. If they showed up on Jenny Thomas's email list, I would not be surprised. Right. These are true believing. Again, they're too smart to play as dumb as they do to the public. And it's bewildering to me to watch uh, federal judges do this. This is, you know, runs contrary to the entire Federalist Papers. I'm I'm sorry. I'll stop. I'm angry. But um, (laughs) but there we go. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So we'll follow this and um, keep everybody posted, obviously. (laughs) We're going to be back. We're going to talk about the Eastman filing, the 40-page glorious Eastman (laughs) filing. Uh, But we do have to take a quick break, so everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. All right. Welcome back to Clean Up on Aisle 45. And boy, boy, oh boy, they gave Eastman 40 pages and he took them all and ran with it with a bunch of crazy pants stuff. Uh, Used all 40 pages. His lawyer begins here by taking the first however many pages to say there's actually amazing amounts of election fraud and so we can't be criminals because we truly believe the election was stolen. We truly I, believed it. So um, do you want the fun part first or do you want to just continue with my high level of anger from the last segment? You pick. Uh, let's go with the fun part. Let's, let's, let's pivot to fun. Okay. So one of the things that you might not have noticed, uh, because if you're just seeing the documents when they sort of hit the uh, you know public domain, uh, as opposed to... Um, me, who, you know, obsessively lives on Pacer <laughs> hitting refresh for this case, which is 22-99 Central District of Columbia. Yeah, I've typed that an awful lot over the years, uh, over this past year. <laughs> this brief was the subject of a... Uh, so so we talked about the time schedule, right? And uh, Eastman missed the deadline because, of course, yeah. he did. Yeah. <laughs> Filed a motion for extension. That says plaintiff's briefs was due at uh, 5 p.m. today, Pacific time, due to an unforeseen family situation that arose during final drafting and editing. Undersigned counsel was abruptly unavailable for a time. The brief should be complete later tonight. So we request a brief extension of time as a matter of hours to uh, to file our brief. Um, that and of course the court was always going to grant that. Um, I, it's just hilarious to me that you know John Eastman f- manages to find the the biggest like my dog ate my homework uh, time and time again. Um, and <laughs> hysterically, uh, that's not the only other docket entry. As it turns out, that motion for extension of time failed to comply with the court's electronic filing requirements. It did not uh, attach the document as an exhibit for which you were seeking a motion uh, of an extension of time, which 
sure. <laughs> like I, it, Again, neither of those are going to affect in any way the substantive outcome. It's not like the court is going to say, uh, nope, sorry, we're not going to read your 40-page brief because you filed it three hours late. But it it is, the amateur hour is, um, would be comical, and and this is my pivot to uh, angry Andrew for the rest of the episode, Mm -hmm. Uh, were it not for the fact that... uh, John Eastman's counsel is lying in this brief. They are engaged in sanctionable behavior. And I'm specifically calling out Charles Burnham, senior partner, uh, founder at Burnham and Gorokov uh, in Washington, D.C., whom John Eastman hired for this. And uh, uh, Charles Burnham, as far as I can tell, really, really good white collar criminal defense lawyer. You may read into that whatever you want for why John Eastman would hire a white collar criminal defense lawyer. Uh, in connection with an effort to fight a subpoena. Uh, I I know my view on that, Um, but it helps explain why, as we've talked about over the course of this litigation, uh, Charles Burnham has done inexplicably stupid things that no lawyer that would do these kinds of cases would actually do. So, for example, in response to a motion to compel, he filed a long statement of disputed facts. Well, you don't fight like that's that, I, I don't know how to explain this. A statement of, of disputed facts is a thing you file in connection with a summary judgment motion, right? Like it, it is because summary judgment says we agree on the facts. And as a matter of law, we ask for the court to rule in this particular way. And so when you're resisting summary judgment, you would say, actually, we don't agree on some really important facts. That's why this has to go to trial. That's when you file that document. <laughs> Um, saying we disagree on the facts on a case that has not been adjudicated on the merits is it's again it's like (laughs) somebody has been you know auditing a couple you know it's it's they're like i'm not a lawyer but like matlock was on in the bar last night like the sound wasn't on but you know i think i got the gist of it like it is just mind-bogglingly wrong and um yeah so I'm sorry, I'm monologuing, so I'll let you come back. No, here. no, I think it's hilarious. Um, <sighs> the, some other things. Uh, here, let me just give you some of the highlights. Oh, please. Of the uh, of the argument that they're not guilty of anything. Uh, here's here's a quote. More importantly, for present purposes, the mounting evidence about the scope of illegality and fraud in the 2020 election. The mounting evidence about fraud in the 2020 election undercuts any claim that the statements on the score made by Dr. Eastman and his client were made corruptly or dishonestly because of all of the mounting evidence. Okay. Uh, He says that even though Eastman himself says his legal theory was illegal and (laughs) wouldn't get past any court, that, uh, no, no, we really truly believe the election. Look at all the mounting evidence of fraud. There's zero. There is zero (laughs) evidence of fraud. Uh, uh, It, it, and, okay, so I have to jump back in here because... As evidence for this mounting evidence, the first thing that uh, Charles Burnham cites is Trump versus Raffensperger, number 2020 CV 343255, Georgia Court, Fulton County, and are quoting from a verified complaint. Now, remember, a complaint is what you allege as the plaintiff, right? There is nothing to stop me from filing a complaint that says, 
Alison Gill shows up in my bedroom every night and licks my ear and it's weird, right? Like, <laughs> no, I, I want to be clear. You, you do not do this. Okay. But I can write that in a complaint. There's nothing to stop me from saying that. Right. And that's what we discovered in every single one of these election law complaints, these that we've mm-hmm. lumped together. Now, now, Raffensperger, Trump v. Raffensperger in Fulton County was not a not represented by Sidney Powell, but falls under the category of Kraken law suits. Right. Like these are suits challenging the election on various disputed grounds with absolutely unsubstantiated claims that have been debunked time and time again and for which individuals and lawyers have been sanctioned. Trump v. Raffensperger was voluntarily withdrawn by the Trump team itself, okay? So you can't go citing your allegations in your, quote, verified complaint. And by the way, verified just means some asshole signed it, right? Like, Oh, yeah, <sighs> uh, but not only does he continue to do that, uh, in several of these lawsuits, but he he also says, he, he, it's almost like he's saying, and judge, you should well know, this is Judge Carter. Yeah. Okay, this is the one who said there were crimes beyond a preponderance of, an, of the evidence. And, and, and this lawyer now, Burnham, is saying, and this court should know from its own in-camera review, there's ample evidence in those communications of illegality, fraud, and statistical anomalies in the election results that lend significant support to the statements made by Dr. Eastman and his client. Like you're that's almost like any smart judge could see the fraud. You know, it's like, holy shit. And then he goes on to say in the prior round of briefing, Dr. Eastman raised numerous objections to the false statements of fact contained in the select false statements of fact contained in the select committee's brief and submitted a separate statement of disputed issues of fact. The objections were not ruled upon, and the court, in many instances, simply accepted as true the select committee's assertions based, in many instances, on unsupported newspaper articles and hearsay of hotly disputed facts, as if these lawsuits are not that, you know? So, point number one, uh, this section cites cites as evidence a complaint that was voluntarily withdrawn by the plaintiffs, right? Like that, that is as, that is as zero an evidence as you get, right? That is at one point in time, but not now. I once told a court X, but I am not willing to defend that in court anymore, right? But it proves uh, then, my case here. But it, now, yeah, I can cite that as evidence in a, an additional case. No, you fucking can't. And and if, if I were the one six committee's lawyers, I would 100%, I'm not being facetious about this, I would move for sanctions in connection with this brief. It is absolutely 100% sanctionable. It is reprehensible. It is horrific behavior. And Charles Burnham, I've said it here. I've said it on opening arguments. I've said it on a Twitter feed. Like, you are welcome. Bring on the the defamation lawsuit if you think I'm mischaracterizing this in any way because you will get your ass handed to you and I'll enjoy it, okay? Throw down, throw down. uh, Yeah. This is this is sanctionable, unconscionable conduct that he knows is wrong. He cites to Dinesh D'Souza's movie. Yeah. The convicted felon Dinesh D'Souza's insane movie, 2000 Mules, which, by the way, is a completely contradictory system of alleging fraud. Like 2000 Mules is talking about how there was ballot harvesting and whatever 2000 mules is entirely different 
than the dead people were voting, which I, I fucking swear to God, that is in page five. Quote, the complaint also documents a deceased voter's registration was changed from deceased to active eight days after he passed away. Tip of the iceberg evidence that suggests a more widespread scheme of fraud. Mm-hmm. None of this. Everybody citing these kinds of allegations has been sanctioned by any court in which they have not been voluntarily withdrawn to recite them here is unconscionable. I was, I was going to say, I I was going to say this just reminds me of the Michigan case. Yeah. Um, that sanctioned pal at all. Um, another, another thing here, uh, this statement just stood out to me. At every turn, Dr. Eastman's efforts were designed to protect democracy by ensuring that illegality and fraud did not alter the results of the election and that the full and transparent investigations into the serious anomalies would be had even if the outcome of those investigations simply confirmed the initial certifications. Oh, yeah, right. The This is the Ted Cruz line that of which Eastman, we, we have very, and we have every reason to believe, coached Ted Cruz to say this, right? So Mm -hmm. on January 6th, when Ted Cruz went to the floor of the Senate to ask for the relief that John Eastman put in writing, right? Hey, let's just pause this for a while and check on state certifications. And, you know, and Ted Cruz said, even if there wasn't fraud, millions of Americans believe there was. And so letting this play out will at least assuage their doubts. And and I, the only reason millions of Americans believe there's fraud is because people like you and John Eastman have been lying to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it uh, un unbelievable. But 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 I want to I want to add, and I am I am grateful to uh, Dr. Lawrence Lessig, right, Larry Lessig, who came on on my show and and made this distinction. This is a it's a really really narrow distinction, but it is crucial to understanding part of Eastman's overall lying process. And that is his constant deliberate conflation. That's why I want to call him out here between illegal and fraudulent, right? So we, so you just read that in that sentence, right? Illegality and fraud, illegality and fraud, illegality and fraud. Those two things are very, very, very different, right? So in other words, a, a ballot can be illegal without being fraudulent. Right. A a accounting system could let's let's take a look right now at, say, the Pennsylvania primary, right? The Pennsylvania Republican primary, which is too close to call between David Montgomery and, quote, Dr. Oz. Right. Right now, what that is going to turn on has to do with an application of Pennsylvania law that says you have to date your absentee ballot when you send it in. And again, because Dr. Oz has been on the, you know, conspiracy theory end of this. They're both terrible candidates. But uh, Dr. Oz is also a snake oil salesman and huckster. So, you know, um, Oz, uh, because he is the most closely aligned with Trump, probably is going to receive the fewest number of mail-in ballots because, you know, his voters think mail-in ballots mean that you've sold your soul to the devil and have taken on the mark of the beast and whatever the fuck, right? Because he's Looney Tunes. Um, He is arguing that you should rigorously apply the Pennsylvania law that says if an absentee ballot isn't dated, you throw it out. Montgomery's side has taken the opposite position, right? They're like, come on, if it has... 
a technical defect that doesn't have anything to do with with the underlying administration of justice. You have to count it, right? Like somebody made an honest but stupid mistake in filling out a government form. Should we try and give voice to them in a democracy or should we say, fuck you? You know, you've got to comply with the law. So so let's take that to its extreme. Suppose, uh, and it's, this is going to be heard by the Pennsylvania courts, it's going to go up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Suppose the Pennsylvania Supreme Court says, yeah, you know what? Count the absentee ballots that are improperly or undated, right? Then Oz's team can say illegal ballots made the, and then suppose that provides the margin. Montgomery comes from behind and overtakes Oz and is the Republican nominee for, for Senate. Oz could say, Illegal ballots gave my opponent the win. He would be technically correct, but that has nothing to do with fraud, right? <laughs> They're illegal on the basis of, you know, that the technicality. They, yeah. Yeah. And and part of and, and so I, I appreciate your indulgence on that, because part of what Eastman has been saying from the very beginning is to lump absolutely everything into the category of illegal and then say, well, illegal is the same as fraudulent. And as we know from, you know, the Michigan misquoting of an 1876 Supreme Court, fraud vitiates everything. So therefore we throw out the whole election. And like none of that is true. Like literally none of that is how any of this works. And 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 the worst part is Eastman knows this so that's right? why he's connecting illegality yeah. with fraud yeah that's it's exactly a, it's right. a reflexive control gig yep another thing here uh because you were talking about 2000 <laughs> mules right oh, another thing here was it would require book length treatment to address all of the factual misrepresentations that have been pushed by the select committee indeed several books such as Molly Hemingway's Rigged, have <laughs> already begun to plow that ground. Sampling Molly here. Z. Fucking <laughs> Hemingway to make the point. Who 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 publishes the Federalist? Who who is the, the editor in chief? Or I don't know, fucking whatever. But like it, it it and and let me let me be clear about this. That that is not the official publication of the Federalist Society. the The Federalist is a a toxic right wing garbage pit. That has published um, openly racist, right? Has has published, a, you know, birther conspiracy shit about Kamala Harris, right? Like, who, by the way, was born in Oakland, right? Like, I mean, just it is, you know, a, the, a more wretched hive of scum and villainy you shall not find, right? Like, it it is unbelievable. The unmitigated gall to cite to Molly Z fucking Hemingway in your brief should be in and of itself sanctionable. Sorry. No, it's fine because the, the whole the whole argument here, and this is literally what Eastman's lawyer is saying. Hey, why are you listening to the House of Representatives and the Attorney General and the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and and you know voting uh, you know experts and in, in secretaries of state? You should be listening to ridiculously uh, <laughs> awful lawsuits filed by now sanctioned lawyers. And and Molly Hemingway's book rigged and tooth and, and you know convicted felon Dinesh D'Souza's movie. That's where the real information is. And how can you possibly how and the way that he talks to the court in yeah. this is like fuck. He's like you should know by what you saw in those emails of all of the anomalies and illegality and fraud. He says countless examples of election illegality and fraud 
and expert opinion indicating a high likelihood of fraud were available to Trump and Eastman at the time. So was the fucking Bill Barr saying there was no a fraud. So was the Department of Homeland Security up and down the whole department saying there was no fraud. So was Rudy Giuliani was even like, we don't have <laughs> machines that do this. Like everyone, so but you found three guys and a couple of crackpot lawyers, and so that is countless examples of illegality and fraud. Again, putting those two things together, and that's when he starts to cite the cases: Trump v. Raffensperger. Um, then he talks about that specifically for quite a long time, right? He says oh, that's a good example: uh, the the thorough sixty-four page verified complaint. Okay. That's what he calls Trump v. Raffensperger. Four supported by sworn eyewitnesses and expert affidavits, which we're all, we all know what happened with those uh, affidavits. We know what those expert affidavits are. Those, quote, expert, right? Spider and Terpsichore. And like, <laughs> I, it, uh, these, these expert affidavits were f- so false on their face that it led to lawyers being sanctioned in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, and then he goes on to say, affected as much as half a million votes in Georgia. Other examples of election illegality and potential fraud that were known at the time and subsequently confirmed abound, he says. State legislators, too, weighed in, highlighting significant illegalities and irregularities in their elections. And then he argues the committee relies on crazy bullshit like statements from the DHS and Bill Barr and the Attorney General and, you know, people like that. (laughs) Uh, And this is hilarious. Eastman wants to correct the record on a January 6th committee claim. He says, finally, we should correct the record on the select committee's claim that Dr. Eastman has acknowledged there was no support for his legal positions about the unconstitutionality of the Electoral Count Act's provisions, intruding on whatever powers the vice president has directly from the Constitution, and that he would lose any case brought by the Supreme Court nine to nothing. Remember when he said that and he yep. said that what he was doing was illegal and you should just break the law one more time? Well, we want to correct the record. Uh, as seems to be a common tactic of the select committee, Eastman's acknowledgement is taken out of context. <laughs> it referred to the suggestion that had been made by others. I don't think. He, he's tr- actually trying to say, I don't think this is illegal. Other people were telling me that it was. It, but not, you know, Dinesh D'Souza or Molly Hemingway <laughs> or anybody it, in the affidavits. It, it, it This lie is worth unpacking here. And, yes. and, and we, we telegraphed this when we talked about the initial hearing on the crime fraud exception. It, it is just... It's stupid to repeat this because you already lost trying to litigate this issue. But here's the game plan, right? John Eastman is trying to pretend that his pivot, we talked about this, right? This is the pivot, right? Uh, That his pivot from Vice President Pence should just go in, declare the electoral votes invalid, and announced that Donald Trump is president, right? That's what he was pitching on January 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Eventually, right, Pence's senior counsel said, that's where they had the, um, there's abs, like, th- this This position is unbelievably fucking stupid, and if you brought it in the Supreme Court, you'd lose 9-0, right? Uh, and then he said, well, maybe we'd get Thomas. And then they walked through that, and they said, okay, well, you know, Eastman conceded that, no, they wouldn't even get Thomas, right? And they pivoted to, right, that what Pence should do is go in and request or demand or declare 
that he was going to pause for 10 days or 15 days or whatever to allow insurrectionists to bring additional charges. And that was the email where he said, hey, you already violated the Electoral Count Act by not taking it back to the host. (laughs) You already violated by debating for more than two hours on Arizona. So why don't you just violate it one more little tiny time? And right. delay the count for 10 days. That's that email. And again, go back and listen to that episode of Clean Up on, for, on, on Aisle 45. That, 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 that Allison is not being sarcastic here in any way. The email says, <laughs> no, what's no, one the... more violation of the law now that the Electoral Count Act is not so sacrosanct? Right? I know. I tend so, to paraphrase, but like literally <laughs> no, he said that. It's literally what it says. And so A... Right. It is the acknowledgement that this request is illegal, notwithstanding the fact that his counsel has now lied uh, and said Eastman doesn't believe it. But but more importantly, any attempt to draw a distinction here on the basis of the pivot is without a basis in law, because the part that would get rejected 9-0 by the Supreme Court is not the magnitude of Pence's actions, right, be it declaring Trump president or declaring an I don't know, right? Like both of those have the same predicate action, which is Pence declaring shit, right? And (laughs) that's the thing that they worked through that Eastman conceded. Okay, you're right. The vice president doesn't have the power to declare shit under either the 12th Amendment or the Electoral Count Act. How do we know this? Because if they did, then there never would have been another election again in this country after the first one, right? Like every sitting vice president would just declare the electoral votes in favor of their particular party. Right. And, and there's no answer to this by John Eastman. Every no, time he's so- called under the carpet for this, he says like, yeah, no, I agree. Like Al Gore couldn't have declared himself president in 2000. Well, if Al Gore couldn't have declared himself president in 2000, then you're admitting everything you're arguing now is nonsense, is without legal justification. Sorry. Yeah, no. And he is now trying to say, the the, the Burnham here, Burnham and Eastman are trying to say, uh, you're taking us out of context <laughs> when you say that. I was just saying what other people thought, what not what I thought. And that is complete and total utter. That's for fabrication. And, and, a- and remember, and, and again, you know, this illustrates the challenge that the one six committee has in, in front of it. OK. And it illustrates the, the, the challenge of holding Trump accountable for one six. Right. Which I, I have said all along. Like, you know, my best hope for Trump in an orange jumpsuit is coming from Fonnie Willis and Fulton County, Georgia, because Mm -hmm. that is a specific narrow crime that I think they can prove. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to prove that Trump didn't believe this bullshit. Right. And, And especially to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think on the basis of what we know right now, and this this is, you know, uh, it, it, is there a possibility that there's a smoking gun document somewhere? Sure, because we've seen the stupid-ass emails that John Eastman writes when he thinks no one's looking, okay? <laughs> so there's possible that there's an email from John Eastman, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, a state legislator copying Donald Trump that's like, 
hey, the president and I agree this is all a, lo- a, a, a load of bullshit, but like you're ready to help us out anyway. Right? Like ordinarily you wouldn't put that in writing, wouldn't put it past John Eastman because he's put dumber stuff in writing. Right? Well, we might actually have that, right? <laughs> let me let me roll. I do. OK, yeah, please. Let me roll go. through these 11 arguments. And then and if we want to talk about the individual ones, we'll, we'll break them down. But these are so, the 11 that fucking so, bad shit arguments. And, and, and let me say the way in which you can evaluate the strength of these arguments is that the nonsense we just discussed constitutes the first 18 of the 40 pages to which John Eastman was allotted. Yes. So in other words, he spent half his brief perjuring. Charles Barnum spent half of John Eastman's brief perjuring himself, lying about cases, misrepresenting basic facts about the election that there is zero chance that this court is going to entertain. And, and, more importantly, remember that this court is not a criminal court, you know, sitting to convict John Eastman of 18 U.S.C. 1001 or of conspiracy to, uh, uh, you know, seditious conspiracy or anything like that. This is a civil court mm-hmm. looking. Is it more likely than not? Right. Fifty point one percent that this was criminal behavior, a finding the court has already made. So with that in mind, go through your, go through the 11 arguments, please. Argument one, Trump was my client back then too. Mm -hmm. That's argument one. Okay. Still doesn't cover crimes. Argument two, several of the emails are privileged because Eastman was emailing agents or other lawyers who had Donald as a client. Again, that doesn't cover emails and furtherance of a crime. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, but just because someone's a lawyer doesn't make attorney-client privilege apply. Uh, this is the same Donald Trump, like, yeah, man, if I just get a lawyer in the room, I can crime all the <laughs> crime I want. And uh, No, no, you must be seeking valid legal advice from said lawyer. And if you aren't, then, yeah, no privilege attaches. And under this argument, um, because, you know, <laughs> he's mailing e- agents uh, or other lawyers of Trump, he says, 21 of the documents identified above are attachments to the email communications. Most are legal analysis memos and their supporting data. 21 are drafts of pleadings. 22 quintessential privileged material. Uh, wait, sorry, no, I'm reading. Uh, yeah, that's footnote 22 there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind. Uh, most are legal analysis memos and their supporting data or drafts of pleadings, which are quintessential privileged material as well as work product. Two include handwritten notes from former (laughs) President Trump about information that he thought might be useful for the anticipated litigation? Yeah, uh, that's footnote 23, which is documents 23555 and 25905. And uh, yeah, if, Hmm. if, if you ask on the short list of Eastman documents I'd like to read, those are very, very high on my Hmm. list. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Argument three. Among the 601 documents in dispute, Eastman has also asserted attorney-client privilege over 50 documents where the client or quote-unquote potential client was other than former President Trump or his campaign committee. Argument four among the 600— And and can I just jump in here? This is, again, whether deliberate or just incompetence, this is mangling the standards for attorney-client privilege— and attorney work product privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Attorney work product privilege are the documents that you prepare in anticipation of litigation. All of these are communications with uh, the the, the subset of 50 documents were 
Potential clients seeking Dr. Eastman's legal advice regarding the constitutional authority of state legislators to deal with election illegality and fraud, you know, by going to the parking lot of a Denny's and pretending that they were the <laughs> legitimate electors in their state. So, number one, uh, crime fraud would, would, would still apply. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I, and I want to say there is put a pin in that for a second because I because I want to talk about a an actual fair exception that Eastman could have but does not assert in this pleadings which gives you some under uh, 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 some indication of the underlying uh criminality here that that's being openly discussed um but the rest of this right this this is communications with state legislatures party committee men uh, a citizen coordinating information for state legislators if what you are doing is coordinating state legislative action, that is not attorney work product. That is not in anticipation of litigation. That is an entirely different function. When I advise members of Congress on particular aspects of the law or on things that I think Congress should take a look at, that's not privileged. That's no. something that you can subpoena and I would have to turn over. Yeah. No, it's not. And, and and potential clients aren't clients either. Uh, that <sighs> stuck out to me pretty, pretty boldly because it's like, well, just because, you know, you might have to defend these guys when they get arrested doesn't mean <laughs> all the crimes you discussed with them are legal or so protected. Let me, so let me put both of those back together, right? It, 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 because I, I said... I, I want to talk about an argument that would otherwise have been available to Eastman. If somebody calls me up tomorrow, right, on my firm telephone line and says, hey, Andrew, I, I just killed a guy and I want to know, is it legal for me to hide the body? Right. Um, that that client, that 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 call 100 percent is privileged. Right. Yeah. Even though it. Number one is not a client and not somebody I'm going to take on as a client because I'm not a criminal lawyer. And number two, he's ostensibly potentially asking for my help in a criminal enterprise. Right. Because one of the things we want to protect is for people to ask their lawyers, hey, is it legal for me to do X? And for the lawyer to say, no, it is definitely not legal for you to do X. Don't fucking do X. Uh, 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 this is an important part of, of my practice. Right. right. And 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 so I, I just want to illustrate. Right. I just want to illustrate like that's where the real bar is. Right? right. So, yes, some privilege attaches to potential clients who call you up and go, hey, man, I did it. I killed somebody. Will you be my lawyer? And I would say no. And then, you know, that the cops can't call me to the stand to say, but well, isn't it true that, you know. Yeah, but this is this would be you reaching out to a potential criminal and saying, <laughs> "Hey, would you hide a body?" That's <laughs> see, this is what I love about doing this show with you because you have <laughs> a you understand the, the the legal aspect and b you've cut through the bullshit. That's exactly right. Attorney client privilege, in particular, prospective attorney client privilege, exists for the benefit of the client not for the benefit or prospective client, not for the benefit of the lawyer and not to allow you to tiptoe up to the line of, 
you know, how much crime can we plan before the nodding and the winking? And, you know, I've got to get like extra visine for my fucking eyes because of all the winking. Like, no. Mm-hmm. I, all right. Yeah. No, I got gotcha. you. Sorry. I did a rant mid mid argument and we're totally never going to get through these all. It's <laughs> totally fine. I'm just going to list them. And then if there's something you want to talk about. <laughs> uh, argument four among the documents uh, is there are three in which Eastman was seeking legal representation for himself. In a in a potential case asserting breach of contract and violation of constitutional rights. Hmm, okay. That I did, did, don't know how to evaluate that, right? But possibly plausible. I don't know. It, yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I wonder what he's talking about there. I'd like to know. Argument five: uh, the court's prior ruling that Eastman's use of his Chapman email account did not waive privileges controlling. I don't know what that means. Okay. Yeah. So what they're saying is that you know, remember when uh, the court ruled, and 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 I think it's fair to say that the court ruled that there is an attorney-client relationship between Eastman and Donald Trump, notwithstanding the the non-existence of. Uh, any documentation that would go to prove that, right? Like the the court said, hey, uh, we're going to assume arguendo based on the conduct of the parties that Donald Trump actually engaged John Eastman as the, as the lawyer. Yeah, and, and even then, though you use the Chapman server, you do have an expectation of privacy uh, in, in, in communications that are protected by attorney-client privilege. That's right. And I, I, but I would distinguish between those two holdings, right? Like I would say, if I'm the one six committee, I, I, I think it is settled as a matter of law that uh, in connection with one six that Eastman represented Trump and that there was an attorney client relationship, you know, whether that makes things privileged. Obviously, you know, you've you've argued for uh, the, the crime fraud exception. Um, I, I, I do not read that ruling as foreclosing on the one six committee from going back to, um, you know, if if there are efforts to recruit like 90 different, quote, potential clients to, to say like, hey, that this is something that we would still want Chapman University to weigh in on. Right. Like, because remember, we we heard testimony from Chapman University that 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 basically had to skirt the line a little bit. Right. It was like, hey, we like our law professors to do things that are of public interest. But we don't want them to endorse a particular candidate. So that's why, you know, the 2000 stuff that that Eastman did was fine. But this 2020 stuff was not fine. And, you know, when you and I looked at that and we're like, that's a narrow, that's a hairline distinction. Right. Yeah. Um, Eastman is now saying, oh, look, you said Chapman University. It's fine. Their university, you know, their university email policy does not apply at all. I have complete uh, expectation of privacy over that. And I don't read the court's prior ruling that expansively. I don't think it's going to matter here, but I just want to flag that. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, argument six, I actually had a question about, um, argument six is, is Eastman says 557 of these 601 documents are covered by work product privilege because we were talking about uh, any number of different lawsuits, including Trump v. Raffensperger, Trump v. Bookvar, Texas v. Pennsylvania et al., Trump et al v Biden et al and Trump v Wisconsin Elections Board and Trump v Kemp et al. So all these, uh, he's saying most of these are work product privilege, work product privilege because I was talking about anyone advising on any number of these different lawsuits, this litigation. Uh, and my question was, if the litigation itself is illegal, if the litigation itself was in furtherance of a crime, for example, Texas v Pennsylvania 
at all. Mm -hmm. Is it covered by work product? It is litigation. It is technically litigation, but it's, you know, I, I, I just wonder where that crime fraud exception weighs in there, you know? So there's a bunch of different things here. So number one, um, <laughs> in the same way that fraud vitiates everything, right? Like the crime fraud exception vitiates everything. When you prepare attorney work product in connection with committing a crime in connection with a case, the fact that you've done so in connection with a case uh, does does not, uh, you know, render that privileged, right? Like you can't, uh, you know, again, previous example, um, you're about to call my client to the stand uh, and put on the murder weapon. And so we plan a, you know, an Ocean's Eleven style heist uh, to get the murder weapon out of the evidence locker the night before. Um, that, that, that's not attorney work product. <laughs> um, my job, an attorney's job is not to help my clients commit crimes. So, uh, so, so yes, but, but, but secondly, and, and I think more importantly, attorney work product is in some sense, a very narrow kind of exception, right? Let me give you a, a, a perfect example of this, right? Like, let's think about like the OJ Simpson trial. Right. And O.J. Simpson had the dream team and Alan Dershowitz and you know, everybody else. And and so all of the communications, if, if, if there was a subpoena in connection with that case for all of the communications between O.J. and his lawyers regarding how to manage the press at the end of every day. OK, which undoubtedly there were and, and you know, probably. This did come up in the civil suit, right? I don't know. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't follow it that 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 closely. Um, those are not privileged communications. They're not communicate. They're not attorney work product because, again, it, 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 attorney work product must be actual legal stuff you have done in connection with the case or with an anticipated case. So I suspect, again, I don't know, but as I look at these descriptions and they say, for example, that 380 documents were related to those particular cases, I imagine a lot of them are documents of the form, right, are communications with state legislators of the form, hey, we have this lawsuit pending in Trump v. Bukvar. It's not going great for us. And so if we lose, would you be willing to declare yourself a Trump elector uh, and petition the state legislature to overturn the results on the basis of differing slates of electors? That's not work product, even though it mentions the lawsuit. Right. So because right, now it's just, oh, well, if you have a lawyer in the room or if you mention a lawsuit, you've got privilege. Yeah, that's that's that. Uh, again, I love the way you cut through my excessive verbosity. <laughs> it's not work product because it touches on a lawsuit. It must okay. be a legitimate attorney thing that you do in connection with an anticipated or an actual lawsuit to count as work product. We don't know because we're not looking at these documents, but this feels heavily like wading through a field of bullshit right here again yeah. we don't know maybe maybe every single one of these are you know sample pleadings in these cases that eastman emailed around and if they are the court will say that right and right. if they are and i want to be i want to be clear on this because look i want i want eastman to have to give up all these documents 
Uh, I want there to be a subsequent criminal referral and I want Eastman in an orange jumpsuit as much as anybody. Um, but I am a lawyer, right? Like, and, and if these are legitimate privileged documents, I I don't want to create a standard that says lawyers should have to turn over privileged. Of course not. So no, of course not. All right. And, and that's argument seven brings up what you're, (laughs) uh, another, you know, you just gave an example of, you know, if they're talking to state legislatures, uh, he wants to argue that state legislative proceedings should be considered litigation when you're talking about uh, work product privilege. They say work product protection should apply to legislative proceedings that are adjudicatory in nature. Uh, and Eastman asked the court to, you know, rethink your previous decision because my communications with state legislators are subject to work product privilege and the congressional electoral count and state electoral count selections are adjudicative proceedings and documents prepared for them were in preparation for anticipated litigation. Mm. So let me again do my best devil's advocate for this for this argument and it's kind of ironic in light of uh the the fifth circuit's ruling uh that that just came out with respect to the sec that that held that uh these adjudicative uh proceedings uh do not count as court proceedings um but 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 here a real example the epa issues a demand letter to you allison and says hey um, your factory is emitting, you know, chloromethylethylene uh, at two parts per million, and the the uh, rules require it to be no more than one part per million. So we're gonna have a hearing, uh, and um, if you know you were found to be in excess of the rules, you're gonna have to uh, install new filters, you know, reduce the output no, I know and also remediate. I know yeah. where you're going. Cause and, you know, and, if I am pre- prepping with my lawyer for that hearing, that's, for that that's hearing. in preparation. That's in preparation but for, even though hearings, it's not a, it's not a lawsuit. It, right. So, but that's not what this, what the, uh, as you know, uh, <laughs> these were people plotting to throw out electors, not have legitimate sort of hearings to decide uh, I mean, it's it's a good argument. It's the only one that you'd be able to make, right? Like, yeah. Uh, well, we it, had it in the Denny's parking lot, and right, you know. and, and, and that's the point is that is that yes, there are administrative proceedings before government agencies, right? Uh, uh, I- executive branch agencies, both state and federal, that look a lot like a trial, and to which attorney-client privilege ought to attach. But that doesn't mean that it attaches to everything the executive branch does, or in this case, the legislature does. Right. And we know this because there are a great many executive branch uh, administrative adjudicatory proceedings in which you don't have the right to have a lawyer there at all. Right. right? Right. And so, you know, like, for for example, you are, you know, if you're redistricted, right, if you are um, moved into another voting district by the state. You just get informed of that by a letter, right? Like you're not entitled to a hearing. You're not entitled to go petition that. You're not entitled to a lawyer that the court doesn't have to appoint one for you, right? Like that's that's just nothing attaches to that. And so the idea that executive privilege, sorry, the idea that uh, attorney-client privilege would attach to anything. No, it just, so this argument proves way too much. But I wanted to say, there's a kernel that's not insane, right? Right, but, right. Yeah, but this argument is not good. Um, argument eight, communications with dual role attorneys or advisors do not, lo- do not lose work product protection. Uh, 
almost true like (laughs) like it's true that so in other words we've talked about this before um i do this all the time right like i serve as legal counsel for my clients and when they are conducting a business deal sometimes uh i also help them with the business negotiations right like Oh, hey, they want to buy X asset from you for a million dollars. You should really push back. Um, I feel confident that they're going to go to a million five, right? Like, and the important part, and so I am serving in a dual role in that capacity. I'm advising them on the legal aspects of the deal, but also on the business aspects of the negotiation. And it is true that the fact that I am in a dual role does not mean that everything they say to Torres is now discoverable, right? That would be a terrible rule. But it does mean that this is the important part. The stuff I do that's not law stuff is discoverable, right? Mm. So if I put in an email and I'm like, hey, these guys are fucking morons and you can definitely ask for $2 million uh, and they say, we want all your negotiation docs, they've got to turn over my document saying these guys are fucking morons because you know what my saying they're fucking morons is not a legal adjudication is not a legal is not legal advice right. it's business advice so yeah um so <laughs> communications with somebody just because they're in a dual role does not lose the work product protection over legitimate work product <laughs> yep Yep, and now we get into uh, argument nine, which is where Eastman (laughs) says, the fact that a client has not yet been determined does not undermine work product, sure. But in this case, he's talking about a group of statisticians working with him conducting a statistical analysis of the Georgia Senate runoff election in anticipation of election litigation that never materialized. You doing your fucking Mike Lindell impersonation is not being a lawyer. Mm -mm. It just isn't. No. (laughs) Uh, Argument 10, one he already lost. That the mm-hmm. subpoena is unconstitutional because it violates the First Amendment. He's just going to throw that in there again. And, and, and again, four pages of that, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I just want to point out that, like, you know, the the last couple arguments, like seven, eight, nine, were all a page, you know, so eight, wait, eight went on for a while. But like, you know, I, a bunch of these are knocked out in like three quarters of a page. But but no, First Amendment. Everybody who's made this argument uh, related to Trump, which is the primary one they've trotted out, has lost like a champion right like lost like a mike tyson opponent in the 80s uh, it just uh, it beaten down brutally and swiftly in 35 seconds and uh we got four pages of it here so mm. uh, but it. you know argument 11 is my favorite <laughs> uh and, and this one basically says hey we couldn't have obstructed official proceeding because one out of 11 judges agrees that it wasn't an official proceeding <sighs> Uh, it says uh, the court's crime fraud finding doesn't apply to these new emails. Then they uh, d- they d- then decide to argue that that the court's crime fraud finding was wrong, saying, "Hey, one judge, Judge Nichols, who's reconsidering, by the way, right? Obstructing an official proceeding doesn't apply here, and you have no proof of deceitful and dishonest means to say that we violated 18 U.S. Code Section 371, right, to defraud the United States. We didn't commit any crimes. And and by the way." Th- these emails don't uh, they don't apply to the old crimes. You got to have brand new fresh crimes. <laughs> I, I you you're you're welcome to make the argument and again uh <laughs> I, I I just want to point out as we as we keep pointing out deceitful or dishonest means for purposes of 18 USC 371 w- require this court to find on the preponderance of the evidence 
more likely than not that it was deceit, craft, trickery, or at least means that are dishonest. So in other words, if you think the guy that said, hey, man, well, uh, now you know, the Electoral Count Act is not so sacrosanct. What about a little more criming? If you think it is at least more likely than not that that dude was dishonest, that's the basis for having the requisite proof of intent. And again, fact finders do this all the time. They are called upon to evaluate testimony and go, yeah, we're not. It, it seems like on the basis of everything that you probably weren't being honest with us in that testimony. And this court has made up its mind about John Eastman's veracity. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the arguments. Uh, what, what I can't remember the expedited briefing schedule, but I think within the next couple of days, we're supposed to get the uh, House committee's response. I think they have yep. uh, 20 pages to yep. respond. They, they have 60 pages. 60 pages yep. to respond. And that is due tomorrow as, as of your listening to this. It's oh, and then the Thursday. reply is 20 so, pages. Yep. And the reply is due on the 31st. That is 20 pages. Uh, it, I cannot wait, uh, for, for the one six committee's, uh, response brief. If, if they don't file for sanctions, I am going to do my very best. Uh, I, I don't have great lines of connection to the one six committee, but I'm going to do my very best, uh, to, uh, uh, to get to them that, that this is, they should, they should be looking at this and reserve their right at minimum to move for sanctions for the unbelievably dishonest nature of, of this pleading. Yeah, agreed. Um, we're gonna have to push comings and goings again mm-hmm. because we <laughs> we got so sorry on these files. <laughs> I was mad. <laughs> it's totally fine. You know, I mean, we don't we have so few. They're like it's getting fewer and fewer as time goes on and on. So I think we can like reserve them for like monthly. Um, so we're gonna do that next time. But uh, thank you very much, Andrew, for answering all my questions and and laughing along with me because that was just one of the. Uh, that that brief just blew my mind uh, honestly uh, yours and mine both it was just uh something to behold so th- thank you for giving me an outlet <laughs> you're welcome and uh, as always we'll be back next week um and uh, look you know keep keep an eye out on your emails we're probably going to set up another one of our cool Ooh. zoom calls for patrons here pretty soon um uh, coming up uh, in probably second week of june or so um, I, I might be, I might be in DC. I might be in DC when we do that. So that would be cool. Love it. All right, everybody until next week. I've been Allison Gill. Thank you so much. And I'm Andrew Torres and this is clean up on aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 